0: All right, good morning, Rock Creek Church. It's funny, because I get to look at a camera, but I also have a few, just a few faces in the room that I get to look at, so that's really nice. It's it's really refreshing to not solely have to look at a camera. So good morning. Um, again, my name is Alex. I'm really excited to to preach this, this morning. I, I really cherish every moment that I get to be able to speak into God's Word, primarily because um, every time I, I get to preach, I get to be forced into this book a little bit more. And it it always challenges me. It always opens my eyes in new ways. So I'm excited to share with you this morning some of the things that God's been teaching me. But today we get to cover yet another difficult, controversial, and often misunderstood passage. So, and I personally know, I want to say this, I personally know several people that have been hurt, that have been dismissed, that have been offended deeply by the way this passage has been used. So because of that, I want to really come at it with, with some care, with some sensitivity. And I want to ask you very specifically, because some of the words we're going to get here, maybe maybe that's one of, maybe you are one of those people that have been offended and hurt by the use of this passage. So I just want to encourage you and ask for you to, to lean in, to hear what I have to say. And I hope that uh, as we dive in and break out Peter's words in this passage, that you'd be surprised. Um, so because of that, I just want to first and foremost say that... that uh, Based on the nature of this passage, I'm going to be going a little bit information-heavy. Um, you know, I, I like to do that anyway, but I'm allowing myself to do it for this passage. So I really encourage you to take notes. I really encourage you to, to listen, to, to follow along as best you can. And I really think that God will bless you in that. Um, so we've been going through this series of First Peter. We, we've been calling it Hope in the Midst of Chaos and uh, it's, it's a great, great title. It sums up the book very well, but also describes kind of what we're going through right now. And First Peter has been a, a very good source of hope for us as a church, for me personally in this time. But we've been looking through this book, and, and, and this passage that we're, we're getting to today is actually the third of a mini-series. So there's a, there's a big chunk of, pa- of Scripture in this passage, um, in this book, that is all having to do with submission. And ours is the third. So about two weeks ago, our passage was all about submitting to governing authorities, to human authorities. Last week, Brian did a great job talking about this passage that's hard to read. It says, slaves submit to masters. So if you missed that, please go back and listen, um, because again, on the surface, that, that instruction is pretty controversial, and uh, the Bible, we don't believe at all, cond- condones slavery. So please go back and listen to that if you want to get more info on that topic. But t- today is the third. The third one in this series, and so our passage is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So if you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to, to hit pause on, on YouTube. If you're watching online, run, grab a Bible real quick. Follow along, write in your Bibles, highlight. Uh, God often uses the intentionality when we come to Scripture as we, as we read, as we write, as we highlight. And, and he uses that, intentionally, uh, that intentionality to teach us some more. But I'm going to read this passage all the way through up front so we can see it and then we'll, we'll get into it and break it apart. So this is 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Peter writes, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. I want you to hold on to that, um, that thought. If any of them do not believe the word. They will be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves, They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is the word of the Lord for us. And it's a doozy. <laughs> I want to start again by pointing out that this passage has been abused. It's been distorted. It's been used to oppress women by people who understood themselves to be following Christ. It's been used that way. It's a hard reality because I don't think that that's right. And for that, first and foremost, I just want to apologize to you. If, if that is your experience, if you've been hurt, if you've been dismissed based on this passage, how this passage is used I'm sorry. I don't think that's God's heart for you. And I want to give you permission to let any hurt um, or any of the false messages you've, you've heard just fall off. Just let them go. And we're going to get into a little bit of that in a second. But there's a problem with passages like this. And it, the problem is not with the passage itself. The passage is not with Scripture. The problem is with us. The problem is when we come to Scripture and we read it and we treat it like, it's, like we're in a vacuum, or we treat it as if God just dropped it from heaven. I almost dropped my Bible. Um, As if he just dropped it into heaven, into our hands, and it's written to us directly. The problem is is that we often misunderstand it. We take it out of context, or we use it incorrectly. And sometimes we even make it say things that the author never, ever intended to say. So before we get into it, I want to give you a, a short list of things that this passage is not saying. Okay? Hear me on this. This is what the passage is not saying. First, women submit to men. Does not say that. Notice that. It says wives submit to husbands, right? It does not mean women should submit to men. Okay? Secondly, women should never, ever, ever wear makeup. You know, some people have actually used this passage to try to argue that. That's not what it's saying. Women should be quiet and never speak up. Doesn't say that. Women are inferior to men. Doesn't say that either. Wives should do everything their husbands tell them to do. Also doesn't say that. And lastly, but most importantly, I think, wives should submit to physically abusive husbands. No. Absolutely not. That is not what this passage is, is saying. Some people will say, submit to your husband regardless of how they believe, or regardless of how they act or treat you. This is not what this passage is saying. So, again, if any of these messages are some that, that you have heard with this, pas- with this passage, let it go. Dismiss it. They are not what this passage is saying, it's not what Peter is saying. So to to better read a passage like this in a lot of Scripture, I want to give you a principle because there's there's an extremely important principle that we need to have in our minds as we read Scripture. Otherwise, we run the chances of misunderstanding a massive portion, portion of Scripture. So here's the principle. If you're writing notes, great thing to write down. The Bible was written for you, but not to you. The Bible was written for you, not to you. It's a very important distinction, especially with this passage. Because again, if we understand the context that Peter is writing to, Peter is writing to first century Christians living in the Greco-Roman world. He's not writing to 21st century Americans. That's not his audience. So we have to keep this in mind. Because these instructions that he is giving in this passage and even you know, the other passages that we've covered so far, these are given to people who live in a very different time period, a completely different part of the world with an extremely different social structure. And we have to take that into account. But again, this was still written for us. This is the beauty of of the Bible, is that God still speaks through this book to us just as much today as he did to the original audience 2,000 years ago. This book is living and active. God continually, to sp- he continually speaks through his word, and if we have ears to hear, he will continually speak to us in many, many new powerful ways. But again, we have to keep this in mind. The question that Peter is answering is not, how do we as Christians live out our Christian faith in 21st century America? the question that he's answering is how do we live out our Christian lives in ancient Greco-Roman culture? So with that in mind, let's get closer to our passage. So I want to give a little bit more context. So that's, that's a little bit of historical context. I'm going to give a little bit of literary context too, right? This is, that's, that's, I mean, you, you realize this when we dissect first Peter, this is a letter written meant to be read all at once. It's a letter. So. It's great that we take the time to dissect it and get down to each little passage, but sometimes we can miss the fact that, hey, two weeks ago we covered a passage that was part of the exact same thought that Peter had when he was writing this passage. So, like I said earlier, this is the third submission passage in, in a larger section. And I want to go back to the, the, the two verses that he has right before this larger section, and that's in 1 Peter 2. 11 through 12. This introduced the section, and this is what he says. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, the non-believers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That provides the motivation for our passage. And it did last week and two weeks ago. That's the motivation. The motivation for for following these instructions is so that the world, the non-believers, would see our good deeds and glorify God, that they would come to know they are God. That's the motivation that sets up the next three. Submitting to human authorities, slaves submitting to masters, again, ancient culture, and submitting to non-believing husbands. Again, keep that in mind. This passage is talking about non-believing husbands. And notice, in each of these three instances, Peter is instructing Christians, believers, who have a newfound freedom in Christ to then submit to people who are not being led by Christ. It's kind of curious, right? But it makes sense in light of that purpose. God has an ultimate purpose. So what we're dealing with here in these three instances, we're dealing with institutions and institutional hierarchy, not God's design for life. And it's a really important thing to think about, okay? We're not talking about God's design for life for all cultures everywhere. He's talking about real-life human institutions that have been corrupted, and he's instructing these new believers, how do you navigate life like this while maintaining the ultimate goal? Their institutions and institutional hierarchy. So again, government. That's the one we covered a couple of weeks ago. God was supposed to be our king. If you read the Old Testament, like the Israelites screwed it up. God was supposed to be our king and they couldn't stop whining and said, all these other nations have their own earthly kings, so God, give us an earthly king too. And he says, fine, I'll give you Saul. And that didn't work out well for them. Slavery, that was a human institution, and it is. It still exists in parts of the world today and in very different forms, but it still exists. But we are all supposed to be free, period. We're all created in the image of God. We all have inherent dignity and work. We are all one in Christ. We are not supposed to own each other. The Israelites screwed that up too, and most of the world has. And then finally, marriage. But again, marriage, this is slightly different because marriage is an institution established by God. But I believe if you look at how he created Adam Adam and Eve, it was meant to be a partnership. It was never, ever meant to be something where one spouse dominated the other. But throughout the course of history, so many cultures have normalized it and have made it acceptable and normal for the husband to exert authority and dominate his wife. So it's an institution. It's, It's a corrupted one. But there is purpose in this kind of submission, submitting to people that are not following Christ. There's purpose in it. God's heart is to save everyone, that people may glorify him. Paul says it slightly different in 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. This is a great passage to memorize if you're looking for one. It says, this is good and pleases God, our savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart. He wants all people to be saved. So what does he do? He asks us, his children, people who are free. We are truly, truly free in Christ. He asks us to use our freedom by laying down our rights and joining him in his mission to bring more sons and daughters home to him. That's what he asks us to do. And that's, that's how this plays out in these passages and in our passage. So that provides our context. We submit to, or he was, Peter was telling them to submit in their context in this way, and we'll talk about what that means for us today, but he was telling them to submit because God wanted to further his mission. He wanted to expand his kingdom and to bring as many kids home as possible. And that sets up the motivation for this. So with all that said, let's let's actually get into our passage and break it down because I know some of you are are curious about it. So let's jump in. Verse 1 and 2. Again, Peter writes, he says, Wives, in the same way, notice that because he's alluding back to, okay, you submit to governing authorities, you slaves submit to masters. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So again, I've mentioned it, but notice the situation. He's addressing Christian women who are married to non-Christian men. That's the context. It's a pretty specific situation, right? And it was very common. Think, of, think about this with me. Go back to first century, the first century ancient world, just envision this a little bit. Christianity is brand new on the scene, right? It's very small, very misunderstood, and a lot of people are coming to Christ. So it's very common for one spouse to come to Christ before the other. Super common. And that added tension, right? It, it would add tension to our, our marriages today, right? If, if one spouse comes home and says, hey, I don't believe in God anymore. Or, you know, I'm a Buddhist now. You know, whatever that would look like, that would be really jarring and it would add a lot of tension to that relationship. So the same happens in the, in the ancient world. But notice, he, he gives this instruction to wives, not to husbands. And there's a reason for that. Because he didn't have to give this instruction to Christian men. That culture had a practice. The way their society functioned, an entire household was expected to follow the religion of the husband, of the, of the man. That's what it was. So, so wives, kids, and if they had slaves, they were all expected to follow the religion of the man. Done. So he didn't have to give these instructions to Christian men. He had to give them to the, to the Christian women who were married. Because in this world, it was impossible virtually for them to to use words to try to get their husband's attention. It was scandalous. It would have subverted all of those cultural expectations for a woman to try to teach her husband. Does that make sense? So these are very specific instructions to wives of that day because they're the only ones that it applied to. So notice this too. Peter doesn't tell her, tell these women, to keep following her husband's religion and just tack Jesus on to the side. Doesn't say that. He expects her, like every Christian, to to have pure, unadulterated obedience to Jesus alone. So he doesn't tell her to keep following her husband's religion. He instructs her in a way to win him over to hers. It's fascinating, right? So on the surface, this seems really chauvinistic. But really, he's subtly subverting culture and is still instructing these women in a way so that they can win their husbands to Christ but it had to be done without words. If they use words, one, they were at high risk, and two, uh, there's a very good chance that no one would ever listen to them. But again, I want, I want to draw your attention to one more thing that Peter does. This is something really subtle, but really, really cool, uh, really important for us to know today, just to see how radical the Christian movement was. He addresses these instructions to wives, and last week, he, he, we covered this passage that he, he gave these instructions to slaves. And we don't think much about it. We don't, you know, we don't really question that. But it's interesting to know that back in that culture, that was unheard of. It was absolutely unheard of. What they would do is they would give all of the instructions to the head of the household, to the man, and he would be expected to pass on those instructions to his wife and to his slaves if he had any. So what he's doing here by actually addressing them directly, again, it's a subtle thing, but he is radically subverting cultural expectations and he's elevating the slave and the wife just by addressing them. So we're only two verses in and you can kind of see how understanding a little bit of the cultural background makes a difference, right? On the surface, we read this. And I'm like, wow, Peter was a chauvinist, but... With knowing the culture, we see how much he valued women. Let's keep going. we got a long way to go. Verse 3 and 4, he continues. He says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So, again, Pause. This was written to women originally, but again, if you take the principle, I think every single one of us needs to hear this. In, in 21st century America, we are so unbelievably image-focused. We are obsessed with image and self-promotion. So back, back in that day, you know, it probably only applied to women for the most part, but today it applies to all of us, so we all need to hear this word. The principle he's giving here to, to these first-century Christian wives Also to us, this is for us, the principle is character matters more than appearance. You can focus on your image all you want, but you're investing in the wrong thing. Your character is what God cares about, and your character is what wins people to Christ. It's your character that provides a good witness. Sometimes Christians are really, really good at talking, and we're not really good at acting. So this principle absolutely applies to all of us today. Verses five and six. He says, For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So, what he does is he draws an example from the Old Testament. This was super common in the New Testament. Lots of New Testament authors would. They would make a point, and then they would point back to the Old Testament as an example. And what it did, it did several things. But one, it validated what they were trying to say, and it also showed continuity between the Old Testament and then Jesus' new establishment for for, um, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So it shows that continuity. But if you take this specific instance, this is really powerful. And what Peter is doing here is really fascinating because what he's doing is he's giving these new Christians these new Christian women, brand new to the faith, a new history. He's giving them a new story. He's saying, you are Sarah's daughters if you do what is right. He's saying you have a new lineage. You have a new story. This is your story. And your motivation for submitting to your husband is no longer because that's just what society does. That's not your motivation. Your motivation is because God has a bigger plan, a bigger mission. It's rooted in Scripture. It's rooted in God's word, not society. So again, Peter is subtly subverting culture. He's replacing their motivations because even though these instructions seem very similar to what the rest of the world would say, he's giving them a new motivation and saying there's a greater purpose. And then Peter shifts gears to address husbands. He says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, some translations say weaker vessel, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So, one of the things I've, I've heard so many times over the years is, is when people get frustrated with this passage, they're like, he devotes all this time to telling women, wives, to submit to their husbands. And he gives husbands this one quick verse of just, oh, just be considerate. And it seems really lopsided. But let's break it down. Because he's telling these Christian husbands, he's shifted gear now, gears now, he's talking to Christian husbands, be considerate of your wives. Treat them with respect. And I want to break down what this word means, because this is a, it's a hot, hot phrase, weaker partner or weaker vessel. Uh, this is one of those terms that really, really can get abused and twisted. This phrase has been used to hurt women, to dismiss them, to insult them. But that's not what Peter's doing here. So what, what does he mean by this? Again, if we go back to the original culture, it's helpful that this, this phrase was used all over the place. Like, Peter wasn't the only one who used it. Used all over the place by secular writers, people just writing back and forth in the ancient world. And everything that we know, they never, ever, ever used this phrase to say that women were weaker spiritually, mentally, emotionally, or intellectually. Like, that is not in view at all. And sometimes this phrase has been used to communicate that. So, throw it out. It's garbage if anybody has ever told you that. So the most obvious meaning and the way that they use this back then is just weaker physically. And that's generally true, right? We can look around. Most men are stronger than most women by nature. It's a generality. It's not a rule, but it just is what it is. But if we take the larger context of what's going on and of what Peter is writing, we also see that women were also clearly weaker in their social entitlement and empowerment their social status. That was a huge area where they were weaker. It was not, not in their control, but they were. They didn't, even have, they didn't even have anywhere close to the full social status and legal status that men had. They, they couldn't hold political office. They couldn't vote. They couldn't do a lot. You know, sometimes people have said that that women were basically just property. And actually, that's not true. I kind of thought that for a while, actually. Um, Mostly this week, I was reading a handful of commentaries, and some of them debunked that women were actually still able to own land. They were still able to own businesses and run businesses, which is pretty interesting. But still, in the grand scheme of things, their social status was nowhere close to that of their husbands. So with that in mind, he's telling husbands Christian husbands to be considerate of that, to treat them with respect as the weaker partner. And then he says this, as heirs, co-heirs with you for the gracious gift of life. So, in other words, he's pointing this out that he's wanting these Christian husbands to think about their social status and their spiritual status. you got to think about both, social status and spiritual status. Because Peter says they are co-heirs with you. Their spiritual status is on the same footing as yours. And this is a radical statement. Like that statement in and of itself is, is more feministic than most of what the, the ancient world had ever seen, aside from some of the things that Paul said. Christianity was incredibly pro-women. And we see this concept show up again in, in Galatians 3:28. Paul says this. this is a great one to memorize as well, but Paul says, "There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." This is a powerful, powerful reality that we are a part of. If you are in Christ, you are the same. You have the same spiritual status. We are all one in Christ. We are all children of God. We are all made in his image. We all have inherent dignity. We weren't made to own each other. We weren't made to dominate each other. So keeping that in mind, again, think about this. Peter's challenging these Christian husbands to think about this. Okay, your spiritual status is the same as your wife's. But you also have to wrestle with the reality that she is weaker socially than you are than you. So if you know that as, a, as an ancient Christian husband who is brand new to the faith, what do you do? How do you act out of this? You be considerate and you show respect. So how does that play out? If I'm in that position, I seek to understand. I seek to understand my wife. I will do what I can to elevate her. And most importantly, I will resolve no matter what to treat her according to her spiritual status Even though the world would not bat an eye if I continued to treat hers less. Christians, we're we're called to something higher. We're called to a higher way of life. And a huge part of that is doing what we can to raise up, lift up the oppressed, the people that are put down, that are held down. And in this passage, That's exactly what was happening to ancient wives. That was the the society back in the day. That's what it looked like. So to summarize all of this, I want to give you some words from a very wise woman that I I, uh, met in spirit this week. Um, I was reading a handful of commentaries, and this is one that I consulted. Um, I'd never read anything from her before. Her name is Karen Jobes, but she's a biblical scholar, and her commentary really opened my eyes in a lot of really cool ways this week. But she says this. To summarize this, this... This section, she says, in these verses, Peter affirms the sociopolitical order on the one hand while simultaneously reworking it on Christian principles so that Christian households become a direct expression of the eschatological self-understanding lived out in society. Some big words, right? You get that? Okay. Yeah, some big words. It's fun. I I just feel smart saying that out loud. Um, But again, he's he's affirming to an extent the socio-political order because again, God's goal is to not drive people away. God's goal is to not form a revolution and just overthrow a society. His goal is to save as many people for himself as he can. But simultaneously, he reworks it and gives the Christian household a new vision, a new purpose, a new understanding of reality that provides an incredibly unique witness to the world of who Jesus is. So what does this mean for us today? I don't know, some of you may be watching this, whole time and say, like, I don't know what this means for me. <laughs> what does this mean for us today? Should wives still submit to their husbands today? Yeah, they should. But husbands should also submit to their wives. And that might sound a little odd to some of you. That might seem a little radical. Um, if you've been raised in the church, but this is what, what I believe, and this is what I believe Scripture says. I believe that God's design for marriage from the very beginning was for a partnership, and for general Christian unity. God's plan for all of it is, is a term called mutual submission. This is something that we, you know, Christians like to say a lot, but mutual submission means, means we submit to one another. We, we submit to each other. It's teamwork. Ephesians 5.21, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on in that rest of that chapter because Paul addresses some similar circumstances in a different part of the world. He addresses marriages. He basically tells wives to submit to their husbands, but then he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. But how did Jesus love his church? He died for it. He sacrificed himself, gave everything he had. He submitted himself to death. He lowered himself for us, for the church. And by doing so, he elevated and empowered his church. He saved us. So when I read that, I almost read it as a a different way to say, and you should submit too in, in almost a more extreme way because you have the power, especially back in that day. But there are still aspects today where men, we hold greater power than women. So it's saying, husbands, use that power. Use your position. Use whatever you have to submit to your wife and elevate her to, to your same status because you have the same spiritual status as a sister in Christ. And I also want to point something out. This, this, I mean, in our passage and in Ephesians 5 and in the entire Bible, you will never, ever find Husbands instructed to demand submission from their wives. Husbands are never, ever told to demand submission. That's not your job. Men, husbands, that's not your job. You do not demand submission. And if you have, I encourage you to repent. Go to God, ask for forgiveness, even if it's just a misunderstanding, even if you did it in ignorance. Go to God, ask for forgiveness, and go to your wife and ask for forgiveness. Because that is not how God designed marriage to function. You know... It's something I've been very thankful for with my marriage with Amanda is we, we constantly try to affirm each other. We constantly try to, to work as a partnership, right? We, we want to make every decision together as best we can. And there are certainly times where she has to submit to me based on the set of circumstances. There have been times where I have to submit to her based on the circumstances. But we do everything we can to function and work as a partnership because that's how God intended marriage to be. We're not perfect at it, but I can tell you right now, if I ever demanded her to submit to me, that would not go over well at all. I don't know if some of you have tried that. It does not work, and it's not God's heart. But I want to point something out, too. With this passage, when you really boil down our passage today, when you really, really boil it down, it is not about gender roles. It's not about who should submit to who. It's not even primarily about Christian marriages. It's about moving God's kingdom forward. That's what it's about. In every single way possible, we seek to move God's kingdom forward. And he's giving a very specific set of instructions for the people that lived in that day. And the motivation is we gotta move God's kingdom forward. We gotta reach more people. We gotta bring more sons and daughters home to their father. It's about realizing that there's a spiritual truth that gives meaning to our physical realities. So you realize this. One of these truths is that you are free in Christ. Like I don't, I don't care what you are going through right now or what your circumstances dictate to you. You are free in Christ, period. You're freer than you could ever be free in, in some worldly sense. Like Even in America, we talk about freedom, but like, our freedom is still limited, but you are truly free in Christ. But as Christians, we're urged... And if we're going to follow Jesus, we're urged to place our, use our freedom essentially to make people's souls a priority over our own rights. Paul has so many great passages. This is one of my favorites. It's in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Um, but Paul says it this way, and I think this really, really captures this mentality that we're called to have as Christians and this has been a huge encouragement to me over the years, but he says this, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. There's that motivation again. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the the Jews. To those under the law, I became under the law. I myself am not under the law. I'm cutting a little bit. Um, All right, technical difficulties. Sorry about that. Uh, where was I? Okay, so we'll go right, right after the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. He's using a lot of words here. Paul has a habit of using too many words. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So he's wordy here, but we're getting there. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. You see his heart there? He cares about people. I will do all of this if I can just save some. Like If by the end of my life, I put all this work in and, and spend years and years and years and years and years working in church ministry and three people come to know God because of my work. That's amazing. I do all this that I might save some. And he says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, the good news. This is the mission of God that I may share in its blessings. You know, every single person that you help come to know God, either for the first time or even on a deeper level, you are sharing in the blessing of the gospel. It's beautiful. And again, this is, you are only free to do this if you're free from yourself. It's only when you're free from yourself, I think that's a huge part of Christian freedom, you're free from yourself. When you're free from yourself, you're truly free to focus on the other. So lay down your rights. Did the ancient women have the right to demand that their husbands treat them with the, the, the dignity and the respect that, that God has given them? I mean, technically, yeah. Like, that's how God wanted them to be treated. But again, they lay, he was instructing, to, instructing them, lay down your personal rights to be a part of the mission. So there is a truth that is truer than anything you're experiencing right now. There's a reality that exists that is greater than your circumstances. This reality is greater, it's more palpable, it's more meaningful, and is literally more real than what you're going through, than anything that we can see in this physical realm. There's a spiritual reality going on around us that gives meaning to our physical reality. Right? That's how this works. Even when you are in prison, you can be free in Christ. The spiritual reality takes precedence over the earthly reality. So it's only when we understand this that instructions like this in 1 Peter make sense, right? He says from two weeks ago, submit to authorities because God is the ultimate authority. That's the truth, right? You submit because God's the ultimate authority. Slaves, submit to masters because you are free in Christ submits to non-believing husbands because God yearns for them to be saved. There's always a greater truth. There's always a greater spiritual truth that gives meaning to our physical realities. So hold on to the truth. That's what I think this passage means for us today. I mean, yeah, there's some specifics that translate well, but all in all, hold on to the truth of scripture. Hold on to God's truth. Hold on to the gospel. Join the mission and lay down your freedoms to see his work play out in the world live in that new reality. And the more that you get into the word, the more that you dive into scripture, the more that you pray, the more that you get into Christian community, the more that reality is brought to life for you. You can see it more. You can see it more clearly. I can. So that's what I want to leave you with, is I want to urge you to hold on to the, the truth, to live according to the spiritual realities. We live in the world, real world, yes, But God has called us to live for heaven, to live for a greater reality. And one very real way that I think we can practice something out of this message is um, she's led us in worship many times before. Uh, She's leading us in worship again today. But here's my my good friend, Heather, who's going to lead us to some more in worship. And I'm going to submit to her leadership. It's not about who submits to who but she has authority to lead us in worshiping our King, our Father in Heaven. So let's flip the script a little bit. I mean, we've done it before, right? But but intentionally think about it, that you are coming into submission to her leadership and even to Josie's leadership. It's beautiful. Mutual submission is, is a huge, huge portion of God's heart for the world. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning for this day. Thank you for your world. Your word, um, the world that we live in, even though it's not perfect by any stretch, Lord, you are still moving and working in incredible ways that we may not be aware of. But you're calling each and every one of us to join you there, to join you in your work, to lay down our rights, to lay down our goals, to lay down our achievements, whatever it is, whatever we're holding on to, you're calling us to lay it down that we can join in the work of the gospel, of of telling our brothers and sisters out there in the world that their father loves them, that he wants them to come home. So Jesus, I pray that you would give us insight, give us wisdom, uh, you would lead us forward, help us to understand, you know, what are some very tangible ways we could just go out and love the people around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, uh, help us to navigate all of this well. But more than anything, Jesus, we ask that you would be glorified, that you would be made famous in this world through us. So we thank you. We give you the rest of this day and this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.